You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. David Johns teaches courses at the School of Government, Portland State University, on U.S. constitutional law and politics, politics and the environment, and politics and film. He has also taught at Oregon State University and the Institute for Policy Studies. He was an international fellow at Columbia University and served in the Carter administration in the office of the Secretary of Transportation and was an advisor to Environment Canada on the Earth Charter. He was a founding co-editor of New Political Science, served on the Wild Earth Board and serves on the boards of several NGOs including the Wildlands Network and Marine Conservation Institute. David has published and spoken widely on science, politics, and conservation and is author of A New Conservation Politics and his latest, Conservation Politics, The Last Anti-Colonial Battle. I started our conversation today by asking David about the difference between the constant chatter about all the problems we're facing globally and the need to actually create solid plans to take action on them. One of the problems we face is that it's very easy to talk about what conservationists ought to do. Uh, It's true that a lot of people haven't really fessed up to the problem yet. They don't want to talk about population. They don't want to talk about fundamentally changing human societies. And all of those kinds of things are going to have to happen if biodiversity is, is, the collapse of biodiversity is going to be reversed and, and further damage prevented. But we never, but to the degree that people do talk about solutions, they talk about a, a vision of where we want to go. And that's really, really important, but very few people talk about how to get there. And that's what, that's what is is missing. We look at the Millennium Goals, we look at the Achi targets, uh, we look at two recent UN reports, a UNEP report that said, uh, you know, 80% of biodiversity loss is due to resource extraction. Well, what does that, you know, what does that tell us if we're serious about biodiversity? It tells us we need to stop extracting resources. We need to stop, our species needs to stop taking so much. And that probably means there shouldn't be so many of us as well. Uh, but it's easy to say, yeah, let's change that. But how and what exactly do we do to to do that? And that's one reason I think making an analogy to human on human colonialism is is useful because it suggests how one might go about dealing with that. And that is to create the kind of political pressure that is is necessary to have an influence on decision makers. If you don't, you won't. That is to say, if you don't create the sort of pressure on decision makers, they won't behave themselves and we won't get the results that uh, that we want. And we're not. <laughs> we don't. And I think it's that old-fashioned organizing that a lot of people resist or don't want to talk about. You mean I got to change? You mean I got to do something different? Damn, <laughs> I <Yeah>. don't want to. <laughs> 
Well, it is kind of funny to uh, think about all the different responses you see out there when people read something horrific um, and, and they chime in with, we need to do something. And I always picture where they're sitting and where they just yeah. went to eat and where, where they, how far they drove to get there. And did they just fly yeah. into Seattle or something like that? We're in a system, we're fighting within a system that is, yeah. it, it's just really strange. It's, it would really be nice if we could step out like the matrix and look at it from the outside when you talk about doing something, like really, really doing something, and you turn and face, at least in the current political environment, I get a sense of deflation. I just, I just go limp a little bit sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. I know what we have to do to keep up the pressure until there's a new administration, which is kind of the only thing that day-to-day -day keeps me going, is that there will be a new administration. There always is a new one. <laughs> but um, yeah, we've been yeah. putting up a fight. We've been organizing. Are you saying that We've had better times and worse times in the past. And would you want to talk a little bit about what were the better times when we were really, when you feel like we were really knocking them down and organizing the right way and, and creating the kind of change uh, politically that you talk about? It is very hard to find ground to stand on to fight when you are within the system. And certainly when we're talking about conservation in the developed West, um, most of us are middle class and bringing about real change is incredibly risky. And when I think back to uh, risk taking, not only within the conservation movement, but in other movements like the civil rights movement and the anti-apartheid movement, uh, those were all people who took significant risks, who um, uh, you know, not only physical risks, but legal risks and others. The first Earth Day, uh, 1970, 10% of the U.S. population was in the streets. 10% um, of the population. Mm. We haven't come anywhere close to that kind of mobilization and that kind of action since then. Um, not even not even remotely. In the 1980s, the environmental movement or the conservation movement became quite professionalized and uh, adopted almost a completely insider strategy. Let's raise money from check writers. Let's hire professional staff and we will lobby. And that's important work, but by far and away, it's it's not enough to bring about the kind of change that we need. We need not only insider strategies, but but or approaches, but outsider um, approaches. The kinds of approaches that other movements, including anti-colonial movements, have often uh, taken. That is to say, how do we make the cost of the status quo really high? You know, we shouldn't forget that, that, that the kind of life we impose upon other species, the colonial relationship, if you will, it's not a metaphor. It's, it's real. About, it's about taking away other species' homes, their food, their lives even. Um, and that is really, really violent. And resisting it um, is not going to be easy when you tell people they have to stop doing stuff 
and not just individuals, but the, 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 there's a structural problem uh, that has to change. Think think back to the to the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, think back to the struggle against slavery. You don't get to own people anymore. What if we were to to make those kinds of of statements and and to go about um, trying to dismantle and get in the way, resist, if you will, the kinds of institutions that insisted humans have a right um, to, you know, to own and do whatever they want with with the world. I think back quite often to uh, Frederick Douglass, who's I suppose one of my um, one of my heroes. And he was, of course, the, the 19th century um, abolitionist. He was an escaped slave and so on. And he wrote a long, long time ago, over 100 years ago, well over 100 years ago, um, that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Find out what any people will quietly submit to and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong that will be imposed. And these will continue until they are resisted with words or blows or with both. Um, and I think a lot of people resist going there. Um, and in Douglas's words, you know, there are people who want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. But wrongs can only be righted by labor and suffering and sacrifice and so on. So, you know, how do we instill in people that kind of of, of passion? And it, it is it is energy intensive. It's exhausting. Um, you know, how where do you begin to bring that kind of pressure? Uh, how do you start to organize people into you know a system where they can act? together and bring the resources to bear where are the you know where are the points in the system where you can exercise some leverage and we're still trying to to figure that out i think but we never get to the place where we figure it out if we don't realize what we're up against which is this as you say this very very powerful system that just keeps grinding on and how do you you know, do you throw yourself? Uh, uh, Earth First used to use the term monkey wrenching. Do you make yourself the monkey wrench? You know, people want to write books. They want to study things rather than go organizing and go out into the streets and do the kinds of things that uh, are sometimes necessary because it, it is risky. People have to sacrifice their jobs. People have to, to sacrifice their ordinary day-to-day lives uh, to to take that on. And that does happen sometimes, uh, historically, but it hasn't happened for a long time with conservation. We haven't gone there with conservation. And so how do we mobilize people to get that passionate and excited uh, about, uh, about resisting the status, the status quo? How do people do it when they want to, you know, throw the British out of some place or throw the French out of some place or throw the Americans out of, <laughs> out of some place. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not easy. Um, and for, for blacks in the U S we talk about, you know, sort of being within the system 
that that took a couple hundred years. We don't have that kind of time now. We've actually been at it a hundred years. So maybe we only have another hundred to go. I don't know. Well, I think one of the problems, and it really didn't dawn on me um, until like Sule and others, you know, started talking about the age of the, this is the Anthropocene. And I was like, well, I know that there's a lot of bad things. I knew immediately what that meant, uh, but I didn't know everything. And it dawned on me a little later that one part of that is the psychology of humans being superior to everything else and that every other species and every other living thing on this planet is subservient to our wants, needs, desires, our economies, our machines. That's when it scared me. That's when that, that word scared me (laughs) because I was like, wait, did we jump the shark? Because it feels like um, a lot of people agree with that without even knowing that that's what they're agreeing with by being in the machine and all that kind of stuff by being in the system you kind of are goaded in that right from birth you're soaked in it and sure. not really realizing so uh, massing a lot of people like Greta Thunberg is doing her thing and that's really the only picture in my mind right now um, of of great mobilizations that are happening anywhere mm-hmm. on this planet but but I don't think that it I'm worried about it. Like, I don't know that there are enough people that are willing to add, to pile on to that, which are required for that to really succeed, to get out of their comfort zones. Because we're also, the conservation movement is very comfortable. We would, we would also like to just fill out petitions and lobby, go to D.C. once in a while, yeah, yeah. and do all the safe things too. The conservation movement is completely complicit in what you described. It's not separate from it. How does that not keep you up at night? Or does it? Well, I, I, I write, and then it puts me to sleep. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> I, I also sense that a sense of humor is very key in all of this. Yeah, no, no. It, it, you go crazy if you don't, if you can't, uh, if you can't, uh, uh, you know, laugh at it. And if you think back, you know, to when things started, um, uh, you know, when you are able to look back, on a successful movement, you know, when did this really start? It can be really sort of hard to, uh, to pinpoint it, but you're right. Certainly in the West, uh, in Europe, in the United States, conservation is a very middle-class movement. It's less so in places like Africa and mm. parts of Latin America. Uh, you know, if you decide to be a ranger, if you decide to take on a project in certain parts of the world, you can uh, uh, risk, your life. You know, even I regard climate change itself as a a symptom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a really problematic symptom, but it is a, a symptom of the underlying causes of more people using more energy and other other stuff. I don't want to say resources. I hate that word because it it implies that that it is our stuff to use, but uh, even that's even that is is symptomatic of of the uh, the organization of society. the The embrace of of growth of endless growth is the fundamental problem. And when we talk about human superiority, I don't think that's the cause of endless growth. I think that that's the rationalization for it. And mm. when that rationalization gets fully embedded, then people don't even question it. Getting them to question it is one of the 
early steps in the process, which is one of the reasons I think a lot of our work has to be cultural work, um, not, you know, not publications in science and nature. They have their, their place, uh, not conservation biology and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, we need songs. Uh, we need myths. We need ritual. We need film. Uh, we need theater. Those are the ways we begin, I think, to get people to see the world differently. Uh, and then it takes a, a, you know, an initial group of people to begin to challenge uh, how things work. And that gets the attention of others. Uh, it, it, it won't be simply a, a cultural phenomenon. Uh, changing the way people think doesn't in and of itself change the world. But it is necessary to begin to get people to behave differently. And then when a certain number of people start behaving differently, um, their resistance uh, can be an irritant to the machine, if you will. And especially when there's crises, which we're going to see lots of crises um, as a result of, of uh, changes in climate and uh, uh, limited resources as the Chinese march off onto their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, we're just we're seeing just huge increases in demands for what part of the world we want to to take. And that's going to create crises on top of crises. And we need to be prepared to, to take advantage, to be able to explain those crises, what's really causing them, uh, and then to offer, offer a way out. I like what you say about the culture. Um, I always picture this cliche guy smoking a cigar high up in a tower, head of a multinational corporation or two or a lobbyist or something. And even listening to this podcast, and I picture him smiling and laughing because he's seen it all before. He thinks. Sure. And he, and he doesn't see anything different in what we're talking about now than he saw 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if he was paying attention mm-hmm. or if he was even old enough. Uh, but Yeah, yeah. But there has to be, I really feel that you have a point here in that there has to be some way that we can reach out to people and do the same things. We have to understand how those guys did this. Like those mm-hmm. guys, those cliche guys, the money bags, the, you know, mm-hmm. fight the power, fight the man kind of guys, how they did this. And it comes through in our movies. It comes through in our curriculum. It comes through, I mean, it's completely soaked and saturated, their message mm-hmm. of, comfort this american dream kind of thing for the united states and, and and every country has something like that you know this this ideal that they've pushed and they've done their work and it's almost running on its own now completely they don't have to do an awful lot of extra propaganda you know we are all very comfortable again and i think maybe that whole thing the songs the mythology and everything else so they've done it on their own on their side they certainly have. Sure. They built. They made the Marlboro Man. They even made the uh, Native American crying over the trash in that commercial. In yeah, the yeah, yeah. They made all and of individuals, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Make it an individual problem, an individual solution. Uh, don't ask us who makes the garbage to to take uh, you know to take responsibility for it. No, that's true. And and so we are in a position of having to buck. Um, the status quo. We need to uh, 
we need to think about what what would biodiversity compatible institutions and societies look like and how would we talk about them what are the values that they would 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 have how do we get people to uh, you know not uh, not reproduce uh, and uh, not look to consumption uh, for their uh, uh, you know for their, their their happiness and yeah this has been going on for thousands of years so they do have to they do confront you know crises all the time and have to deal with those the world the world changes in ways that are unforeseen uh for them but nothing like what we're talking about we're talking about i believe having to dismantle uh all these great institutions of power not just change them out um not just change rulers um but really um take the things the pieces apart so that they stop ripping up things and eating up things we're just you know we're eating the earth uh realistically we need a conservation star wars we need uh uh you know a conservation we shall overcome we need all of these these pieces we need the equivalent of the black churches and the civil rights movement um, all of those things are important to bringing about fundamental change and i think we can we can do it there are others that we we can look to you know how do we mimic or replicate those um those those movements but if people are too comfortable you're right they're not gonna they're not gonna take risks or if if hollywood for just to take one example out of all of those if hollywood is too conservative to really hit it on the nose one might argue we've had our conservation star wars in movies like avatar but those or just a really recent one a horrible movie but jurassic park world the thankful end of the saga of that's that series um <laughs> i found myself needing having to watch that my son wanted to see it and everything and and sure and sure. they have conservation messages deeply embedded in them and and other people who are more aware will go no they were right on the surface but i'm talking about from a general population perspective sure. Those messages were deeply embedded. And people, I can now see in retrospect that they walked out of the theaters largely unchanged, obviously, by yeah. those movies because they yeah. got seen by a huge portion of the world. I mean, they were very, very big movies. Very, very big. Mm -hmm. The biggest uh, with Avatar. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it seems like we're on the right track when we're trying to embed those, whoever is trying to embed those messages, but they've embedded them, I feel, too deeply. I think we need to be more on the nose with this stuff so that people understand while still playing within the machine and being entertaining somehow. Um, because a lot of people well, don't like yeah. to pay a bunch of money to go into a theater to be depressed. Well, I don't think we want to depress people necessarily, but uh, sometimes tired. that's unavoidable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Michael Soule used to accuse me of, of being the most depressing person he knew. But I think that the distinction you're getting at is how do we get people to act? It's not about just getting people to, to change their mind or to agree um, with a certain viewpoint. 
the whole point for us must be how do we get people to act and not just act as as individuals you know i'm not going to eat any more meat i'm not going to uh you know drive a tanker truck i'm not going to do this that or the other thing but i am going to join an organization of activists that engages in you know ongoing political pressure to fundamentally change uh, policies and what policies do we want to, to fundamentally change? Well, how do we begin to, to undercut um, growth? How do we uh, begin to alter the fundamental economic and social institutions of our society? You know, we don't get world leaders today that come out and say, yeah, you know, screw biodiversity. Um, uh, let's just, uh, let's just liquidate it all and make our pile. And, you know, by the time we're dead, somebody else will have to, to deal with the problem. Uh, they don't say that they sign treaties about how wonderful biodiversity is and what they're going to do, but then they don't do it because in fact, they are, uh, engaged in a number of ways of, having to keep the system going that they are serving. And that requires growth. It requires tax revenue. It requires energy and subsidized energy and, uh, and, and so on. It's a little like disarmament, I, I suppose, in some ways. Who's going to go first? Mm-hmm. And the only way anybody is going to go first is if, there's, if they're feeling the pressure, if they're feeling the heat. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of heat that, that brought the old Soviet Union down. Now, they were ready to go down anyway. You know, Gorbachev could have brought in the troops and done what earlier Soviet leaders had done. Uh, and, and uh, you know, beat, beat the protesters up and put them in jail and so on. For a variety of reasons, he didn't. Um, and the thing began to um, un, un, unravel. Will we confront opportunities like that? I don't, I don't know. And sometimes when things start to unravel, they get worse before they get better. Uh, so, well, let me, let me uh, float this by you. Let's see if this is interesting to you. There's a huge, I always look at, you know, political regimes as like a pendulum and they swing radically and an a pendulum always swings back in the same direction with the same force that it was shot the other way we're getting ready to have another pendulum swing. And we've got this huge, huge built up of pent up stress and anger and fear uh, over a lot of conservation issues. And a lot of it is very watered down, you know, just climate crisis or, or whatever. And it's to the understanding that people have, but I feel like in some ways people are getting a deeper understanding because there's so much noise and there's always that evil guy to point to. To say, see, yeah, this yeah. is why, this is why, this is why. And so for four years, you sit there and you just build up this potential energy. Talk about what you think might happen once that pendulum starts swinging the other way in terms of what doors, what really big, hard, very, very heavily guarded doors we've never really been able to get past might be open by that pent up potential energy that's been built up here. That's a really good uh, point and, and question. How do we use 
the leverage of frustration, if you will, um, because we're we're not really interested, I think, in seeing, you know, the pendulum swing back where uh, to Nixon, <laughs> you know, right. Uh, we got all those great things out of Nixon. We got ESA, we got Marine Mammal Protection, we got, we got, we got, we got. Uh, and, but a lot of that had to do with the Vietnam War and his unpopularity and his desire to get the new 18-year-old vote and to, to be loved by people who hated him for the war and hated him for betraying civil rights and, and all of those kinds of, of things. So we want to go uh, much farther. We want, as you say, to break through some of the walls that we have not been able to get through or even talk about. Um, what it would be like, for instance, uh, for the United States to have a, um, uh, maybe not an anti-natalist uh, policy, but certainly uh, begin to focus on uh, a smaller population for the United States, especially given all that we uh, consume. What would it be to not let, um, uh, you know, the financiers uh, and big companies to to run the show? What would it be like to to break them up uh, and to create different uh, different goals? In the early days of the republic, um, you didn't just sort of walk in and get a corporate charter for fifty dollars. Uh, you went to the state legislature and said. I plan to do a public good and I would like limited liability and these other benefits from the state government in exchange for doing these good things. Uh, not just going out and making money. That's not a good thing. Wasn't considered a, a basis for getting a corporate charter back in the 1790s and the early part of the, uh, the 1800s. There's no reason we couldn't go back uh, to some of those kinds of things, but it would take enormous pressure given how embedded, you know, well, do you guys want jobs or what? What do you want? I mean, you know, we, we hold all the chips. And so you give us what we want or you don't get anything. Um, we have to be in a position, I would argue, uh, to push for alternatives to generate uh, the kinds of political support for those uh, uh, for those kinds of alternatives, and there's a whole you know there's a whole range of them, but it's going to be difficult because everyone is is used to having things, as you say, a certain uh, a certain way. We started a group back in the 1990s when Oregon was growing really really fast, and nobody liked it, and it was alternatives to growth Oregon. But as soon as the economy slowed down, the response of people was, oh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> a no growth economy is really an economy that is in recession, a growth economy that's in recession. Now, that's not what a no growth economy is, uh, a growth economy that's in recession and and some people lose their jobs and, and, and so on and so on. A mm -hmm. no growth economy might be an economy in which everybody works half time and doesn't consume as much. Uh, it decelerates, if you, if you will. But if you just put people in a position of 
having to, uh, you know, some people working six jobs uh, to stay afloat and other people completely unemployed and just being superfluous um, to the economy. Yeah, that that's not going to work. And for us to be able to create an alternative, alternative institutions, an alternative view and alternative institutions that that can work while while those who want to keep on with the status quo are doing everything they can to sabotage us. And if the politicians don't scare you, think about convincing Nike to sell less shoes in a in an economy that's not dependent on eternal growth. The question is how do we you know how do we attack consumption? People's um, compensatory needs, if you will, not their real needs, but their sort of you know, the compensatory needs. I just got to have a 300 pair of a $300 pair of tennis shoes to feel all right with my life. And mm-hmm. how do we begin to convince people? No, not only do you not need a $300 pair of tennis shoes, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you don't need. Just as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, yeah. <laughs> just say no to Nike, you know? And uh, there are there are other more meaningful things in uh, in life than horrendously expensive tennis shoes. But if your life is frustrating and disappointing and 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 so on, you know, who doesn't want to be, you know, a rich basketball player or a rich tennis star or rich, you know, whatever. To me, those are all compensatory kinds of things. and, and, And why are people. Uh, so needy for those kinds of things. Thoreau once said, "You probably remember this. Uh, well, you don't remember it, but you've read yeah, it." I, I was, I was uh, there. He said, "Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> a person is wealthy in proportion to what they can leave alone. If we, if we accept that statement as true, then most people and most societies are extraordinarily needy. Uh, even Adam Smith wrote about how a rich person." What he loves his wealth for more than any other reason is not the political power it buys him, not all the stuff he can have at his beck and call, but that when he walks down the street, uh, he calls attention to himself and and people point and say, yeah, you know, this guy is really wealthy and rich and on top of stuff. And he just, his heart dilates within him, Smith says. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you know, so even Smith recognized the, the issue here, uh, the, the problem. He thought, though, that, that there would never be such a great difference between uh, rich and poor, that they would all ultimately live in the same neighborhoods and uh, they'd all have to live with the same consequences. Um, you know, we all got to breathe the same air. So that's why I'm not going to screw up the air, says the, the gasoline companies. So, but they do. <laughs> Yeah. Although there are little movements all around the globe toward, um, it, it might be just be fashionable, I'm not sure, toward minimalism. There are people who are indicating yeah. that they've had enough, that they really don't like mm-hmm. stuff anymore. They don't feel fulfilled and all of that. And they realize they were just throwing it into a, an abyss that was never going to fill with shoes and houses and cars. It would never fill. It's, just, it's a hole that belongs to something else. It's a, it's a different solution mm-hmm. they're looking for. That might be a pretty small percentage of the population, but it is heartening to see 
I mean, we come these things come and go, but the, 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 the marketers then ramp it up. They, if they in, see any indication that this might be catching on, they, they're always at work trying to figure out new things we should want. Yeah. Who was the 1950s guy who said, you know, we just have to learn how to produce more stuff and use it up quicker and wreck it and, and keep producing it because that's what our modern economy is based on. He was a PR guy. I think the issue or the problem is <clears throat> there's always lots of others willing to take their place in the, in the machine. Can we, can we break the machine? Yeah. Uh, can we not simply count on or depend on individuals making changes uh, in how they live? You know, it's a little like trying to get by without a car in the, you know, in the U.S. or, or some other uh, countries. When the whole country is built on roads and cars, how do you live without one? And you can. And, and uh, it can be quite, quite problematic and inconvenient, but what's really necessary is, you know, stop building the damn roads, tear them up and build, you know, something else, rail lines, whatever. Mm. Um, you see some food production moving in that direction, you know, eat, eat local. Again, I just think a bunch of individuals by themselves um, or in, certain numbers just saying, well, I'm only going to eat locally. Ha, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, what about your coffee? What about your bananas? The structure needs to change. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember having food that was seasonal only. Uh, you got strawberries in uh, mid late summer, you got blueberries in you know, another time of year. And, um, uh, and so now it's year round and yeah. they're more expensive in winter cause they're, they're flown in from Chile, but, uh, you know, I, and we, we've come to expect that some, some degree it's status, but, uh, for some it's just become habit. In episode 22, uh, Randy Hayes and I had a discussion about bioregionalism and yeah. he, he made a point, he, he made the same point except he said it with the exception of coffee and chocolate, I believe it was because we don't want to yeah, start yeah. riots. We could go a yeah. long way in that direction before we were ever ran up against uh, having people make a choice on seasonal things or, or whatever. I mean, there's yeah. a long way between where we are right now and a completely bioregional, you know, that we just, we just don't drink coffee anymore. We can't grow it here. And well, we don't there. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's true. I, I mean, I, I agree. And I don't know how this is, you know, going to un, unfold. Um, but, you know, think of it, Jack, there's seven and a half billion of us. Uh, at the beginning of the Neolithic, there were five to 10 million of us. So 12,000 years ago, when we started farming, there were five to 10 million of us. And uh, before farming, we lived primarily as hunter-gatherers um, uh, in groups of 30 to 50 people, fissioning and fusing and, uh, and, and so on. At about 400 people, you begin to get hierarchies. And, uh, and that begins then to feed, uh, you know, feed on it itself. Uh, so you lose 
societies lose the ability to control the narcissists at, at about that that stage of of things um, the the sort of self serving self aggrandizing type type so when we start talking about fundamentally changing our societies, we are confronting how do we deal with how do we deal with how we organize our our lives uh, does bioregionalism mean that the Pacific Northwest is its own political entity uh, is it going to get beat up by uh, the inner mountain west uh, that has more oil or you know whatever how how is all of that going to play out i was in the soviet union for a while after it collapsed and there was no law enforcement uh, you know a lot of people were glad to have the kgb gone but they um, uh, they didn't like the fact that there was no law enforcement and there was all this corruption and it wasn't like they just turned the factories over to the workers they didn't they turned the factories over to oligarchs and uh, uh, and to high-level communist party people who then became entrepreneurs and and so on so how we transition is is going to be uh, very difficult but if we don't just confront this notion that there needs to be a lot fewer of us consuming a lot less. And energy would be the place to start. Um, we're so dependent upon energy subsidies. And we have been, humans have been for a long time. It used to be slaves that we depended upon. And fire and then water power and, and so on. But it really exploded in, in the, the 19th century with oil. And that just multiplied. For every calorie we put on the table in the U.S., we spend 20. You know, that's just, uh, how can you continue to do that? The tractors, the oil, the pesticides, the pumped water, um, you know, the, the miracle of, of, of American agriculture is dependent upon this, this huge energy uh, subsidy, which isn't going to last forever. We'll try to make it last forever. We won't probably stop, but we're going to have to find some way to um, uh, to cut back on, on that. I, I think population is probably the easiest place. It would be easier to cut back on population than consumption. <laughs> when you point out facts that we lose the ability to control narcissists in groups as small as 400, at right after you said we're at 7.5 billion people, I'm just, yeah. I'm thinking, oh my God. Yeah. So I don't feel so bad about the rise of our narcissists now because we had no chance at all. I mean, <laughs> we yeah. were way over a group yeah, of 400 people. Difficult. As you talk, I'm, I'm like, yeah, farming's the problem. No, oil's the problem. <laughs> Let's go get that. Yeah. I, I really think that there's so many things. Sometimes I, I love to fall back on the simple, and I think everybody else does too, when it gets too much. It's like, oh my God, there's this, there's that. And, mm -hmm. you know, like people are out there really solely and exclusively focused on climate crisis. And it's not a bad issue yeah. to be focused on. But as you said earlier, it's a symptom. And it always just yeah. comes back to who's creating all these problems, like all of them. What are they all tied to? And then you can get to population. And, and what's your take on that? I mean, you've probably, you've had countless discussions with uh, some of the world's best thinkers on population issues. I mean, it's not we, like we haven't tried to get people to be aware of this issue, but it is the least 
openly discussed issue out there in terms of conservation of any of them, yet it seems to be the biggest and most important one. What, how are we going to break through, break down that wall finally? Well, it's starting, um, I believe that population is coming uh, back to the fore. Um, there are still those who, you know, want to argue, oh, no, you can't, you can't tell people what to do. The Chinese were so awful. Uh, but, um, you know, and they weren't doing it for biodiversity. They were doing it for development reasons. They, they were just going to eat up their surplus and with more people and have nothing to invest if they didn't do something. And they did, and it worked. Uh, and they created a, you know, 300, 400 million uh, middle class almost overnight in one generation. I think that it is, you know, from, from my standpoint, we have to get to a place where we can successfully argue and embed into law the notion that having children is a is a social responsibility in the sense that uh, it's not an individual decision because the impact on others is so significant, other people and other species, that there has to be limits on it. And people won't won't like that, but I don't see any other uh, any other way. Simply hoping that people will see the light. Simply hoping that there will be a demographic transition. You know that people will start having fewer kids when kids become more expensive and and, and those kinds of things. That's not quick enough. And there's so many of us. We're still adding at the peak of population growth. In the 70s and 80s, we were adding about 84 million people a year. The rate of population growth has decreased, you know, significantly for demographers from, you know, 2.1 to 1.7 or 6 or whatever the hell it is. Um, But we're still adding, because there's more of us, 80 million people a year. So we're still adding, you know, a, a shit pile of people, a billion people every 15 years or so which is creating a huge, uh, huge demand on, uh, on the earth. And I don't see what else we can do but confront that and to invest very, very heavily politically and, and, and otherwise in uh, trying to discourage people uh, from having, having children. In some corners, the culture of families, building families seems to be ebbing. If you pay attention to some of the things that, you know, surveys of millennials and why they're not having kids and supposedly, though I haven't seen anything really authoritative on it yet, but the buzz is that a lot of millennials are at least putting off kids, um, Mm -hmm. if not giving up on the whole idea. And they're, they're, they're citing some pretty exciting things that I would like that. It seems like a sea change for the culture of just the baby factory that we were back in those decades. <laughs> and it is that I, you know, it is an expense issue for millennials who've been asked this in different studies. It's expensive. And, and also they don't really feel responsible bringing a kid into the world as it is today. And the future that is as bleak as it's painted um, in so many ways for their kids. And maybe that's the issue or not, but I think expense is. 
I think that's mm-hmm. a real one. <laughs> and, uh, and it is expensive to have a kid. It's terribly expensive. Mm-hmm. And you really have to be committed to that whole, you're selfish if you don't have kids, weird, weird argument that um, parents use or other women who have five kids use on their friends. You know, you have to really be dedicated to that because what they don't talk about is how much each of those kids cost them the environment. I mean, just every single resource. I just read some statistic about it's like 7.8 million pounds that each person of stuff in our lifetime that we use in a Western Western society, 7.8 million pounds of stuff. That's where every single baby that's born. And it's, I don't even know how the earth was able to handle when we were talking about population, uh, you know, at 6 billion, at 5 billion, because it was already over capacity there. The math didn't add up there. Yeah. yeah, we have overshot by drawing down capital. I mean, you can chop up your furniture, right? And throw it in the furnace. Um, and we're kind of doing that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think some of it probably is depression, but there's also, you know, don't forget all the other people in the world who are not U.S. millennials, but who are still good Catholics, good Mormons, good whatever it is in, in some parts of the world that are still popping them off pretty good. And there are some countries, you know, the Soviet Union or the Russians are trying to get birth rates back up again for a variety of reasons and on and on and on. And it's some a- are saying, you know, some like the Japanese are saying, no, no, we don't need more people. We can, we can take care of our old age pensioners and all of that. And other countries are saying, oh my God, no, we need to bring in people to, to work to support all the people in our old age homes and so and and there's um, here's popular culture once again in the matrix mm-hmm. all the humans are batteries they produce a certain amount of electricity for the machines and everybody left the theater thinking the enemy is the machines so i think a lot of people miss that we don't have to get to the machine age where robots are running everything and that they'll be the enemy they don't understand we're already living in that because we really are economic batteries bankers love more babies there's more interest there's more loans there's more everything to do and we really are those batteries in that movie yeah yeah you know marshall McLuhan said that that humans are the genitals of of the system (laughs) (laughs) you know we just um you know we're the we're the cogs in the machine, but we also reproduce the cogs. And in the in the course of reproducing the cogs, we reproduce the machine. So that that is a really crucial point. I think uh, the highlight today for me is just how we break the machine. Because outside yeah. of that, I don't see a clear path. Because and when I said in the beginning, we're already we're all fighting. All the conservationists, the scientists, and everybody else are fighting from within the system that is causing all of these problems. So, no, I, I agree. I think conservationists probably fly more than a lot of businessmen. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of people are showing up to uh, Greta's events in private jets. And she's calling them yeah. out, though. I mean, that's one of the yeah. bravest little kids on this planet. To be able to stand in front of a crowd and talk to them about anything is horrifying with the condition that she has and her admitted hatred of public speaking. And then she's telling them, you are all complicit in this whole thing you love many of you flew here in private jets to come yeah. to this conservation conference on the climate and yeah uh, that level of bravery i think is inspiring yeah. a lot of other people it has definitely inspired a lot of yeah. other people well we'll see if it inspires world wildlife fund or conservation international to um you know tell coca-cola to go fuck themselves well it'll have <laughs> to at some point uh 
because yeah, I hope people, so. people have to turn away from that like they have to turn away from personal choices like meat or no meat yeah. or World Wildlife Fund or Rewilding Institute. You know, yeah. little shameless plug, but like who's really doing the thing or and yeah. who is really serving the machine and is completely plugged into it and they still don't know it. It's almost like that and it's worse when people don't want to see it. You know, I wrote my check for $50. Mm-hmm. I'm cool. That's part of the problem. Um, you know, World Wildlife Fund, I'm sure they tell themselves the same thing. We took, you know, 10 million from Coke. They use most of the world's, fr- they use more fresh water and aluminum than anybody else in the world to sell their crappy soft drinks. Uh, we're going to turn another, you know, turn a blind eye uh, to what they do, but we're going to use their 10 million to save the armadillo or something in, in uh, Santa Elena. It's, it's all these compromises. And that's why I think it's so important to have a real clear vision of where we want to go. You know, we want to set, let's say one of our goals is to set half the earth aside for non-human species. That's a pretty clear goal. And the nice thing about a goal like that is one starts with that vision and then you back up from there. Okay. How Mm -hmm. do we, how do we get there? Not, you know, not say, well, first let's do 3%, then let's do, this let's do this let's do that you know start from where you really want to go and what are the steps back from there so that so you don't tend to get caught up uh, so easily in um you know the near term the short term and um never get to uh, to the long term think about where we want to be ultimately and what are the steps to start moving in that that direction uh, I think if we fall victim to what's realistic, we're we're doomed. Well, I remember hearing that half Earth stuff um, long, yeah. long ago, and then it became more popular rec- in recent years. But you know, and I remember thinking, my God, with the things that we're seeing at public hearings for reintroducing wolves in the Southwest and everything yeah, else, yeah. I just that is a fantastical. I mean, I was just not bullish on that. I was just like, no, this is not going to work. And nobody's going to, I mean, it's crazy. Nobody's going to ever believe it. But now it makes more sense than anything. And I think people are more in it, like the Weiss Foundation and E.O. Wilson and um, Nature Needs Half. All those guys are starting to be very palatable and understandable because there's so many issues flying around and there's so much stuff to think about. Yeah. Half just makes it like, okay, half. Well, we need need wilderness areas. We need more private protected land. There's stuff to work on here really easy when you start to back off of that big vision. And I think what people need Mm -hmm. more than anything is to uh, lay the confusion that is out there. It's just, this is simple. Okay. Wilderness area. I get that. That fits into that half earth thing. I can support this. Exactly. And it gives us an opportunity, I think, to go on the offense and not just be on the defense. Uh, you know, we want half Earth for other species. Uh, you know, we're at 17 percent. Uh, that's not good enough. And, uh, you know, just keep pushing at that. But at the same time that we do the direct protection, I think we need to, you know, work on population and consumption and all those other kinds of things. You know, you don't sorry, you know, no more cell phones. We're we're no longer going to go. Uh, go into the Congo Basin to, you know, get the rare earths we need for these things. Um, they're just going to have to go away. <laughs> Super easy. I mean, we could probably have that done by next Tuesday. 
Yeah, well, I, I you know, in some ways, it, it one would think that we could because they're so recent. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very very hard to um, get people to give up their habit. This one came on strong and really quick. This is probably the. Yeah. the I yeah. mean, they'll look back on this period as holy crap. They won't be able to find yeah. another arc in a in, in, like this um, in human history, other than to look at population itself, population growth. Yeah, the way that yeah. this yeah. Uh, the technological stuff oh, the is the hockey taking. stick. Yeah. Well, David, I love talking to you, and I feel like we just got started. You're definitely going to have to come back and be on Rewilding Earth again. We have so much to talk about. You're like a walking encyclopedia of sometimes depressing <laughs> information, but also hope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I, um, I, I appreciate talking to you. It's been fun and uh, it's been too long. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.